In the 1980s, pharma-funded scientists made safety claims regarding OxyContin that were not supported by quality evidence. Health authorities approved the drug, health officials recommended it, and well-intentioned doctors prescribed it for their patients. And with that, the opioid crisis was born. Purdue Frederick went on to make $30 billion in profit at the cost of hundreds of thousands of lives. Today, pharma's once again making safety claims that are not supported by quality evidence, this time about the safety of COVID-19 injections for our children. And Pfizer is poised to make $100 billion in profit in 2022. What should be of great concern to parents is that many health professionals have been forbidden by their colleges from speaking out against COVID-19 policies, including these injections. Although many brave doctors have defied these orders and attempted to alert parents of the dangers associated with these shots, many others remain unaware. If our health advocates can't speak out on behalf of our children, who will? COVID-19 genetic vaccines are inadequately tested, unnecessary, ineffective, unsafe, and potentially fatal. Global pharmaceutical interests have materially influenced our healthcare system and are profiting handsomely from their efforts. Our governments have failed to protect us and have muzzled our doctors who have sworn to protect us from harm. We are our children's last line of defense. It's time to stand together. It's time to stop the shots. Please share this video with your friends, family, and elected representatives. When sharing on social media, please use the hashtag StopTheShots. If we act quickly and together, we can make a difference. Bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, do your own research. Meticulously measure the risks versus the benefits. Your kids are worth every single moment you spend. Good evening, everyone. I'm Joyce Kamen, Vice President of Public Information for the FLCCC, sitting in for Betsy Ashton once again. So here is what is up with Betsy. You've all been asking about her. So here's the story. Betsy moved and she was busy settling in, but then she had to have emergency eye surgery from which she is recovering. But it's been an extremely slow process, which is why she is not with us again tonight. She sends her best to you all. And Bets, we're sending our best to you for a speedier recovery because we miss you. Uh, a reminder before we get going that our advanced practice nurses are here and ready to answer your questions, the ones that you place in the Q&A function on your Zoom screen. So tonight I am here with the FLCCC chiefs, Dr. Pierre Corey, chief medical officer, and Dr. Paul Merrick, chief scientific officer. Tonight we're going to be talking about vaccines, risks, benefits, and alternatives. But first, here's a quick review of some of the top stories that have been flying around this week. First, Dr. Anthony Fauci, as you may have heard, announced he will be retiring before the end of President Biden's term. Okay, enough said. Next, the Novavax vaccine is the fourth vaccine to be authorized in the United States for the prevention of COVID-19. Just a reminder though, that the Novavax clinical trial was conducted before the Omicron and Delta variants were circulating. So the data on which it gained approval doesn't show how well or if the vaccine works against BA5, which is the subvariant of Omicron that is now the predominant variant in the US. Then there's this, 
COVID-19 vaccines, it appears, may affect women's periods. In a survey of more than 39,000 people, the study found that among those who have regular periods, 41% reported heavier bleeding after getting vaccinated. Then, for those who do not typically menstruate, breakthrough bleeding was reported by 71% of people who were taking long-acting reversible contraceptives. Breakthrough bleeding was also reported by 39% of individuals who were on gender-affirming hormones. And breakthrough bleeding was also present in 66% of those who were postmenopausal. Now, Time Magazine was quick to note that, quote, it's too soon for researchers to make any conclusions about what the results might mean, end quote. Really? Uh, sort of seems to me that we can comfortably conclude that COVID-19 vaccines are affecting women's periods. Yeah? You agree? All right. Uh, just wondering here, there seems to be a significant number of women in the study whose periods were affected. So why is this just being reported now? Maybe the time to have reported it was just guessing here when the clinical trials were underway. I don't know, like I said, just a guess. And when should safe and effective become maybe safe and effective? Roll the dice. The German government is admitting to vaccine side effects now. Uh, they released a, a study that said that the results said that one in 5,000 shots causes serious side effects. This is likely way lower, though, than the actual numbers since side effects reporting is voluntary. So the very least any government can do is discuss the potential side effects with the people who are taking the treatment. Show of hands, if you took the COVID shots, how many of you had an informed consent discussion with your provider first? Well, that's what we have for you tonight. So let's get going. No more delays. Over to you, Dr. Pierre Corey. Okay. Pierre, I, Pierre? I, yeah, I'm here. Um, good hey, evening. Good All evening. Right, you guys can see me. Yeah. So uh, let me just start with sharing my slides. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about the vaccines in terms of um, informed consent. So we we thought it would be, I guess, a, a profitable or a productive exercise to talk about informed consent um, in terms of the vaccines. Probably long overdue, but you know. When you obtain informed consent from a patient as a physician, and it's typically done around procedures, uh, sometimes high-risk medicines you do it, uh, standard approved, commonly used medicines we don't, uh, but something new experimental um, or that has high risk, we, we generally seek to obtain informed consent, and that would apply to the vaccines. And for those of you, I mean, the general structure of an informed consent uh, discussion is that you go over the data as much as you know it. And if you're an expert and highly trained in your field and that procedure, you should be well-versed in the data. Um, I, I don't think we could say that about the average provider. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, I don't think they're expert on the data. Um, but the general structure is that you go over the risks and any of known uh, or calculated risks of the procedure or treatment, the benefits, and then always you wanna offer alternatives. And really those three components are, are critical to really a fully informed consent discussion. Um, 
the thing that I've had as an educator who's trained physicians for a couple of decades is I always had a problem with my um, the doctors who were I, I was supervising. They basically just covered risks. And I always had a problem with that because usually if we were obtaining consent, we were doing it for a procedure that we already implicitly knew would benefit the, the patient. And so when you only tell a patient about risks, you have uh, you run the risk of uh, unnecessarily scaring them away from something that would benefit them. And so I always tried to emphasize the benefits as much as I knew them. And I generally would know what we were doing it for. So you remind the patient to take those risks and interpret, the, interpret them in terms of the benefits. Um, and there was always alternatives. You know, I'd always say, we don't have to do this. And then I would have to spell out the consequences to not doing the procedure and all and any other alternative interventions that you could do. And so, you know, if, if you do it really well, it's a nuanced discussion. Um, some patients kind of would just sign on the dotted line. They didn't seem particularly uh, interested. They kind of knew that they needed the procedure. But other times you'd have, uh, you know, pretty involved discussions. And when you're talking about uh, vaccines, it's interesting because um, I don't make the decision to vaccinate anyone. I have not recommended anyone to get vaccinated um, for many, many, many months now. Um, so here, if I were to have an informed consent discussion with a patient, my bias as an expert studying the data would not be to lead them uh, to the fact that the benefits outweigh the risk. I don't even know how I would have that discussion. So I'm gonna to try to do it. I don't think I can do this neutrally um, because in the context of the vaccines and what I know about them, um, I feel it's important to highlight those risks and emphasize the risks as well as minif minimize the benefits, almost like giving someone a worst case scenario. And probably why I would do that is because I'm an early treatment expert. And, I, and as an organization, that's probably one of the biggest impacts we've had is trying to disseminate and emphasize um, the idea, not the idea, the reality that early treatment works. And so um, I just figured I'd give a little bit of that background, but let's kind of go through the exercise. Um, the second challenge, the second thing that makes this uh, an informed consent discussion unique is that Having lived on this earth for the last two years throughout COVID, like many of you, you know, listening today, um, what I've learned and what I've observed about what's happened in science and media and agencies um, is that there really is no such thing as an informed consent because there is no open, sharing, transparent uh, exchange of information and data on those three components. Um, everything has been distorted, propagandized, or suppressed. And um, I, I, for me, uh, living in an advanced health economy and what I thought was a democracy with freedom and all that, um, I've, I've been, I, I think, forever altered by, by what I've witnessed, which is unrelenting propaganda and censorship. And there's a lot of evidence to support that, right? So the fact that our uh, Department of Health and Human Services, our federal government, thought it important to give a billion dollars to various U.S. media agencies to support a favorable view of the vaccination campaign. They wanted to get everyone vaccinated, and they paid for it. They paid for it in favorable coverage and, and, and in these narratives of safe and effective. Um, more ominous is Bill Gates, who, you know, in, in Bobby Kennedy's book, you can see his history with what he's done in supporting vaccines. 
with a very checkered past and and uh, very poor, um, I would say, benefits to be realized for his efforts. But you know, it's been well documented. He's essentially the representative of the vaccination industry, their intellectual property rights and their financial interests. And his footprint on the globe is very hard to really describe, but he has money everywhere in public health. So every single major significant entity that has been responsible for the global uh, COVID response, um, he has given massive amounts of money to. He's the second largest donor to the WHO. He essentially runs Gavi and CEPI. Um, he gives money to the NIH and all the major universities that we look to for guidance. Um, you have Bill Gates's money there. Um, he, in, in addition to the HHS money to media agencies, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they've given well over 300 million to major media outlets across the world. I don't know why a philanthropist needs to give so much money to private media outlets. And he also supports almost all of the high impact medical journals. And so it's extremely disturbing. I, I didn't know this stuff before, but knowing that now, I think it's important to recognize that if we're going to have an informed consent discussion, because the information has not been transparent, it's not been open, it's not been objective. And, and you can see that if anyone's been paying attention to this relentless media narratives, which I've long noticed have been divorced from the science and the data. Um, you know, in terms of censorship, I mean, I just put on one slide a few of them, but one of the most, I think, remarkable ones was the British Medical Journal, one of those high impact journals. Finally, there was a crack in the edifice and they actually published an article detailing all of the fraudulent research practices. Um, they, you know, they used uh, data provided them by, by a Pfizer whistleblower and that was actually attacked and censored as misinformation by fact checkers. And it even prompted the editors of that journal to denounce the action. Just, it just shows you how reflexive and pervasive uh, this censorship is. Even when you have it coming out of a medical journal, if it's not favorable to the vaccines, you need to whack it. Um, the CDC has been described by the New York Times as well-documented. They have not been sharing data as their primary responsibility. They have not been sharing granular data, and we know that the data that they have shared has been manipulated. And then we go back to the, the famous tactic of censorship, which is retraction of scientific articles, of which this organization has been a victim of a number of times. The papers that Paul and I, the important papers that Paul and I have published um, have been retracted and attacked, and so have any of the vaccine papers. And those retract when you actually look under the hood of how those retractions happened, it was not through faulty data, faulty analysis, or faulty presentations. In fact, there was very little substance uh, to support those retractions. And, you know, I think culminating with this is the article this week. I don't know, Joyce, you, I don't think you mentioned it, but this is another important article is that it's now being reported that employees of our health agencies, the federal health agencies, are now resigning. They, I think they see that the, the, it's about to collapse and, and the dam is about to break. And I think they want to distance themselves. I'm, I'm very cynical about this. I think this is about them protecting themselves. I think there was cause to resign a long time ago, but they're doing it now because I think they, they, they know that the truth is going to come out and the massive fraud and censorship and propaganda is going to be available to all. Now, when you talk about the risks, I mean, just at the start, you know, when, when Paul and I were looking and when we heard the vaccines on the horizon, We'd done research on, on the prior coronavirus attempts. I mean, it has a very uh, a troubling past. The attempts to vaccinate against a coronavirus all led to worse outcomes from the, uh, the vaccinated. And we went into this global campaign with knowledge that the spike protein was a pathogen, 
that it distributed widely throughout the body. We had very little uh, genotoxicity, teratogenicity or oncogenicity studies, which is like cancer causing birth defects uh, and, and, and genetic abnormalities. And, and then even we had, there was even a concerning fertility study. So I got to tell you, there was no really good signals that this was ever going to be safe. And certainly that was never tested in the trials. The amount of exclusions in the trials, pregnant women, women of childbearing potential, uh, lactating women, the elderly, none of them were included. And so, you know, you, you went on a global campaign on really scant data. We know this was rushed. We know that everybody was scared and they were trying to put a stop to it. But this, I think this is a... Um, sort of a cautionary tale of when you hurry up the introduction of a medical intervention into society without uh, due diligence. And so the risks, I could probably do an hour on this. I'm just gonna kind of hit some highlights, but just looking at the data alone that was published in the original manuscript. And I was just talking to Paul earlier. I remember the day that the Pfizer trial was published in December of 2020. And when I looked at that paper, I was like, wow, that does not look like a friendly vaccine. I mean, just looking at the fevers, the headaches, the chills, the shaking, I mean, it was astronomically higher in the vaccine events. And I was like, that looks like you're going to get really sick for a few days with the vaccine. And that was just the short term. And then when you looked at, you know, this Pfizer report that they sought to suppress for 75 years, which was the post-marketing, I think it was nine or 12 weeks, where they, after the trial participants, they followed the 42,000 uh, or 44,000 participants. And they found that of the 42,000 adverse events that occurred, half of them, almost half of them were not followed. They were either unknown outcomes or not recovered at the time. So we don't even know what happened to those patients who almost half of them who reported adverse events. Of those that were followed and that you had a final determination, 3.7% of trial participants died. So if I were going to have an informed consent discussion, I would tell someone or even informed consent for another trial, I would say, well, in the last trial, Almost 4% of all study participants died within nine weeks of the trial. Does anyone want to sign up for another trial like that? And by the way, that is an undercount because many thousands were not followed. We know that they did not have the staff. And, and that was part of the whistleblower report is they were not following adverse events. And so the idea that within nine weeks of a trial, and keep in mind, trial did not include the elderly. It excluded a lot of patients with significant uh, chronic diseases. These were largely younger and healthier people, yet they had a 4% death rate within nine weeks. I mean, it, 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 it's almost like it leaves me speechless. Um, and then unsurprisingly, knowing that, Right with the rollout, you had this explosion in event reports and deaths to VAERS, right? And, and the only problem with that is there's only one limitation is that VAERS is underreported. The, the underreporting factor is large. You know, there's estimates between 30 and 40 just for deaths related to the vaccines. And so, um, and then more recently, you had some uh, press reporting that the CDC in some FOIA obtained emails has admitted to not monitoring the VAERS database, which is not surprising to me. You could see the stance of the government. They wanted to ignore VAERS at every turn because the goal was to vaccinate. And, and then this fixed media narrative that we've been subjected to now for a year, which is um, that, that the VAERS database is a correlation. It's not causative. Uh, again, I have to make my point. The, the, the standard regulatory approach when you introduce a novel intervention or medicine is any adverse re uh, event reported should be considered causative 
first until proven otherwise. But what did we do as a globe is we dismissed everything as correlated and not causative until proven otherwise. And, and that upending of a long-standing regulatory standard um, is, is one of the many factors which has led to what I think is a catastrophe. Um, and when you look at those deaths, right? They saw those deaths. That was in a, in, in, in a court-ordered document that we had to obtain to learn about how many deaths occurred after the trial, and that's what they were attempting to block for 55 years. This is fraud. They are trying to bury adverse event data in order to further the adoption of their product. And, and I think this slide is a really scary one because it shows the amount of reported deaths for various products that have been introduced. And if you look at the bottom, surprise, surprise, that's 28,000 deaths as of uh, just this week in relation to the COVID-19 vaccines. Vioxx, which was one of the most historic frauds of pharmacy, they paid billions in dollars in criminal penalties and civil penalties for that. That's the next one. So their last major fraud is on that slide. Another major fraud was Bextra. So just on this slide, when you see reported deaths in VAERS, you can see a signal of fraud. When you start to see explosions and deaths and nothing happening about it, those deaths will continue happening as long as the fraud happens. And then the other thing, right, is when you, when you saw the agencies and the media try to explain away all of these deaths being reported, they kept saying these are background deaths, you know, and I would like cringe and want to punch a windshield when I was in my car and I'd listen to someone on the radio say, well, if you go to this, uh, the car wash and then someone dies later that day, you can't blame it on the car wash. And I, I wanted to scream like, if everyone keeps dying after going to the car wash, I think we should start looking at the car washes, right? And, and when you look at this graph to the left and you see the fact that these death reports are all occurring temporarily associated with the vaccine. It takes around 42 days before the death rates of a vaccinated person approaches background levels. This is not background deaths that are mistakenly being correlated. And then in this more recent paper, again, a lot of these papers are in preprints. And that goes back to my first point about censorship and propaganda, is most of the real data and the real analyses that I'm finding that I find compelling and accurate are on preprint servers and they're on substacks. Because if you look to the high impact journals, you're talking about going into the den of censorship and the editorial mafia. But this was a really interesting paper by expert researchers where they looked at all of these VAERS reports. They could not find another explanation for their sudden death rather than the vaccine. And so when I talk about these risks, and let's go back to January 22nd, 2021, right? Within three to four weeks of the rollout of the vaccines, you had 182 deaths within three weeks. And every vaccine before then, at most, if you combined all the vaccines, you had 158 deaths a year. Now you had one in three weeks. Is there anyone who's surprised that we're at 28,000 deaths in the US now reported into that database, which we know is underreported? And at that time, when 182 deaths were being reported, the percentage of the US population that was vaccinated, I think, would may have been one, two, or 3% at most. Um, and we saw this. This is from Juan Chimia, one of our analysts. He started showing us this in like February and March. 
he, he started looking at the most aggressive rollouts of vaccination campaigns, small countries where they just went out and vaccinated everyone. They were not seeing any deaths to COVID before that. And suddenly you had these massive spikes in deaths being measured in countries that were rolling out these vaccines. And you saw it in Israel, and then you saw it here down on the, on the right with the boosters. And so uh, it, it's hard for me to talk about these risks, but then saying that the risk of death is absolutely unacceptable. And this is from the Philippines. It's a little bit of a confusing one to interpret. But essentially, if you look at the proportion of young people, so if you look at the blue, the orange, the gray, and the yellow, there's almost no young people dying before the vaccines. And then when you see the proportion, so the green, the 40, 49-year-olds, huge proportion that are dying. The blue, huge proportions are 30, 39-year-olds. And look at the yellow, which is 20-year-olds. I mean, massive increases in young people dying after the vaccines. And then, Paul, you want to take this slide? Because I think this is another risk of, of the vaccines if we want to have a full discussion. Yeah. So, I mean, the paradoxical thing is that the more you get vaccinated, the greater your risk of getting COVID. And what it actually does is it impairs your immune system. So this was from The Lancet, which is, you know, one of the peer-reviewed journals that um, try and hide the data. The study showed that immune function amongst vaccinated individuals eight months after administration of two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine was lower than among unvaccinated individuals. So people who get vaccinated, it tends to impair your immune system. According to the European Medical Agency recommendation, frequent COVID-19 boosters could adversely affect the immune response and may not be feasible. So basically what they're saying is the more you get boosted, it's actually a rooster, not a booster. The more it impairs your immune system, the more likely you to get COVID, but the more likely you are to get other secondary infections. So the yeah. vaccines are actually adversely affecting your immune system. And so Paul again, apart from all the other adverse events, I mean, and this was published in The Lancet. Yeah. Um, and you know what? They're still recommending boosters and roosters and who knows what else. And Paul, you know, you and I, we've talked about this in regards to the flu vaccine, which is barely to non-effective, yet it's been given and mandated across the country for decades. But when you look at those who get the flu vaccine, they're at higher risk of developing other respiratory viral illnesses. So, you know, when you look at just the efficacy against one single uh, virus, you're not understanding what's actually doing the immune system and leaving you open to other things. And so you don't want to look so narrowly. You want to look more broadly. And, and, and I, the way I interpret this too, Paul, is that we keep on vaccinating people with a two-year-old virus. That is not the virus that's circulating now. And so the idea that anyone... Would, would, would volunteer for a two-year-old variant uh, when, when the ones circulating now are so fundamentally, fundamentally different. I, I mean, I, it, it, you just can't even consider it as a reasonable proposition. Yeah, you know, there seems to be so much excitement for reasons that are perplexing with this Novavax. And again, the Novavax was designed, I mean, was designed with the Wuhan strain. Yep. And in fact, when it was tested, it was tested against the alpha variant, which has gone like the tooth fairy. So um, why the tooth fairy is still around, Paul. Not really. I've looked in my house, it is. Why you would actually even consider, you, you know, this Novavax is truly astonishing. And of course, 
you know, what does Walensky say? Oh, this adds to our armamentarium of safe and effective vaccines. I mean, are they deluded? So, I mean, clearly, I mean, apart from all the adverse events, the immune suppression, this, this vaccine is directed against a virus which is gone. It's like saying, oh, I want to protect myself against TB. I'm going to vaccinate myself against Ebola. I mean, they're so completely now distinct. Yep. Um, and the, the, the people seem to get, think that, oh, Novavax is now an alternative to the mRNA vaccines. I mean, it's, it's, it's laughable. And, you know, and then, you know, it's funny, while Joyce was talking, I remembered I didn't cover, you know, the fertility and menstrual issues with these vaccines. We know that the lipid nanoparticles that distribute and highly concentrated in ovaries, the, the, you know, the menstrual issues that women have reported across the country, the surveys where hundreds of thousands of people tried to respond, people, women tried to respond, and now we're faced with the first data on birth rates. They're coming out now from uh, January and February data because there's always a little delay, but now there are really alarming parts. You're seeing drops in birth rates and, and they're unprecedented, statistically unprecedented. There's not a lot of variation from year to year. And so when you look at 2020 to 20, I mean, 2021 to 2022, right? A delay of nine months, we are seeing statistically significant drops from a number of countries for which that data is available. And so if, if I were to counsel a woman on, on risk benefits and alternatives, I mean, this would be the most alarming things that I would think about if, if, if they're of child, childbearing or even pre-childbearing age. And so, yeah, so um, really the question here actually is, is there anyone who would benefit from the vaccine? I mean, is there any demographic or any patient group that could possibly benefit? And the answer must be no. I mean, I can't think of any single group of patients who would actually benefit from these, whatever they are. The benefits? Just... Well, let's talk about the benefits, Paul, right? I, I went through the risks first um, because I don't believe in this, in this therapy. If I did, I would probably go through the benefits first. But if you go through benefits, right? So vaccine, we're taught, right, you generate antibodies, and then those antibodies should provide you immunity from infection, right? Um, in that Pfizer report that they tried to suppress, all of those infections that occurred during those nine weeks, remember, they were fully vaccinated, right, and protected. Guess how they counted all of those infections that occurred in those nine weeks? They counted them as adverse events, adverse events, not as vaccine failure or breakthrough infections, right? And, and you know, with that first, uh, I would say that's the first fraud that they did. Then we were subjected to months of that, uh, you know, perfect protection of it. And then when that data went sideways and they couldn't do that anymore, now you literally have today, you have numerous health officials and government leaders on record as admitting that it does not prevent against transmission. So what do they resort to? Ah, but that's not what the vaccines were intended for. They were intended to prevent against severe disease, right? This is another incredible paper, also on a preprint, right? Because no high impact journal is going to publish this. But these were again done by expert researchers from high uh, level universities, which looked at vaccination rates across countries and then case counts. And I'll tell you, 
All you need to know is the slope of that curve is going in the wrong direction. It means the more you vaccinate, the more infections you see. Whereas if vaccination really protected a population against cases, and then subsequently, obviously, severe disease and, and deaths, you would see the slope going the other way. And so there really is no epidemiologic data to suggest that. And then this is the most alarming. This is the most recent data. And this is from uh, um, uh, New South Wales, right in Australia. And if you look at the green, those are those with three doses or four plus doses. And when you, this is hospitalization rates, by the way, hospitalization rates. Which color do you guys want to be? You guys want to be the little tiny one in blue, right? And this is actually rates per 1 million. So that dumb argument that I always hear, like, oh, more people are vaccinated, so more people are going to the hospital. Not true. This is normalized as a rate. And so when you see these rates of 114.4 versus 2 point, you know, versus zero or 2.8 or 0.9, when you see the unvaccinated, I got to tell you, I really want to be unvaccinated because the, those rates are far more protective against hospitalization. So this, this, this narrative that it prevents, prevents severe uh, illnesses and death is absolutely absurd. And there's been plenty of data to show that that's been false for a long time, um, not in the U.S., the U.S. is a special case, and I've talked about this on my Substack and in lectures, um, but the U.S. Uh, hospital systems manipulated data. I'm just going to say briefly, in the United States, if you were vaccinated and you were entering a hospital, there was a process of documenting that where they did not document you as vaccinated unless you were vaccinated in one of their clinics. And so the vast majority of patients in hospitals throughout this pandemic who were vaccinated actually went in as unknown and that was interpreted as unvaccinated, and which fueled the entire narrative in the States that if you're vaccinated, you won't go to the hospital. Again, manipulation and fraud. This is from Chris Martinson, who did a quick little article and again, he calls attention to the, the, the real thing that you want of a, out of a vaccine is you wanted a vaccine to improve survival from all causes. And that's the other sleight of hand trick is they led us to believe that the most important thing in our lives was to not die from COVID. I would argue the most important thing is my life is to not die from anything. And when you look at these age standardized mortality rates, right, of the unvaccinated, you know, uh, per 100,000, and then the person years, it's 795. Someone with a first dose over 21 years ago, it's more than doubled. Someone with three doses or booster, it's more than, it's almost tripled. So the vaccinated are dying from all causes at much higher rates, which again, just supports the, the, the toxicity. So I don't know, we covered risks, we covered benefits, the alternatives. Well, I got to tell you, most everyone's had COVID so far. If you've got natural immunity, ride with it. Do not try to mess with that natural immunity with a vaccine. I, in fact, I think you would worsen it. Um, there's no credible evidence to suggest that you would, you know, uh, amp it up or make it more optimal, um, not with the toxicity ratio of these vaccines. And so natural immunity is highly protective against severe outcomes and deaths. There's exactly. very, yes. Yeah, you know, when you talk about natural immunity, I mean, obviously natural immunity just by basic principles is much better than um, immunity from the vaccine. But much like the variants have changed, so the immunity changes. Because I saw in the question, so you know, if you if you had um, COVID due to one of the early earlier variants, you know, the alpha, the beta, the gamma, or the delta, 
it doesn't actually provide very credible or very good protection against BA4 and BA5. Yep. So that people must must be cognizant of that. The fact that they they you still can't put your guard down. You still need to follow healthy practices. You still need to do the protective measures we recommend. However, if you've had BA1 or BA2, the recent data like this week suggests that it actually provides pretty good protection against BA4 and BA5. Yeah, Paul, Paul that paper you said, I was, I was pretty shocked by it. So I'll give the numbers because I just looked at it before we started. But if you were infected with a pre-Omicron variant, it was between 15 and 30% protective from infection with BA4 or 5. But if you had BA1, 2, like earlier this winter, it was like 80% protective against BA4, 5. And so um, it's true. The variants are going to continue changing. Um, but while you're within one variant, you know, natural immunity will be protected for some time. But the, the message is vaccine is not going to help you. You yeah. know, so, I, I always yeah. tell my patients, I always congratulate them. I say, when, when I get them better, I say, congratulations on your hard-earned new natural immunity and, you know, profit from it. Yeah, so I, I think it's clear that there's really no place for the vaccine ever, unless maybe from you from a different solar system or planet. <laughs> but I think the bottom line is, is that, you know, if you've had BA1 or BA2, maybe you have protection against BA4 or 5. But I still think, you know, it's very important that people take precautions. And most importantly, you know, when you get a flu-like illness, it's COVID until proven otherwise, and you need early treatment. So, you know, nothing, nothing has changed. That's I the think message. that you can't let your guard down. This virus is circulating and it's probably going to be around for a long time. And we need to, need to learn to live with it. Obviously, no masks, no lockdowns, no, none of this silliness that we did. We just have to be cognizant of it. You know, make sure you, you optimize your health take your vitamin D and whatever else you need to do, do your mouthwash and be prepared. Don't let down your guard. And that, that, that would be my recommendation, Paul. And, and, but when you talk about alternatives, that's what you would do, right? You talk to them about, listen, you have natural immunity. You can rely on that or you're young and or healthy or both, right? I mean, healthy people, they have really good outcomes with this. And then when you add in the alternative of just focusing and relying on early treatment, I mean, you're going to be okay, right? This is actually an old slide from January 6th. The list is even longer. These are all of the therapies which have been shown to be effective. The ones that are circled are the absurdities that the U.S. government recommends. But look, there's almost, there's over two dozen. And now that list is longer. And when used in combination, keep in mind, all of these point estimates of benefits and protection against uh, significant outcomes, severe outcomes, that's just with that drug alone. When you use them in combination, like we have done in the FLCCC, we give a combination synergistic protocol, you're going to be fine. We know how to treat this disease. And so uh, as far as risks, benefit alternatives, I think you got our message. And I just want to finish with this, um, this report, which I saw mentioned in um, uh, The Defender. But there was a recent case that a psychologist brought against the Order of Psychologists of Tuscany. They wanted to expel him because he wasn't vaccinated. So he brought it to court and the judge ruled that that person does not need to be vaccinated. Why is that? 
He said they don't prevent infection and transmission. So that's not an obligation. If it doesn't protect you from disease or transmitting the disease, then why should you be forced to take it? And also, there's a recognition that there is real risk to this. And therefore, it's not legitimate to mandate anyone to be injected with something with such significant adverse events. And what I think is really important for this discussion is they actually said that mandatory vaccination is only possible if there is informed consent. And informed consent is not possible. And the reason why they said it was not possible is because we don't know the ingredients, we don't know the mechanisms of these substances because of a lot of secrecy. I, I would say we don't know those things because of also propaganda and censorship, but it, it's nice to see an Italian judge recognize that there's really no truly informed consent. And then just to go back to the point that Paul made, I'll tell you, I was looking at the Novavax trial, which was published, I think, last July. And it, it, it gave me a memory, like when Pfizer trial uh, was first published. So th what these are is adverse events, right? So this is the adverse events versus placebo. And when you saw there were much higher rates in those who were vaccinated after dose one, and then you saw much different, much more separation after dose two. So you kind of saw like a dose response in systemic events. These were the local events, which were really high. Like, I don't want to show up for that shot. I mean, you're going to get a sore arm. You're going to get red. You're going to be in pain to, to far greater extent. Like, these are really scary local reactions. But the systemic reactions weren't good. And these are the, this is dose two and this dose two. So when you see dose one and dose two, you see much higher percentages. So, you know, 60% with like headache, fever, joint pains. I mean, this looks toxic. And it, it's proven to be toxic. But the reason why I put up the Novavax uh, uh, data is because I think people are already developing this false impression that, oh, it's not an mRNA technology, it's just a protein, and therefore it's probably safer. Well, I gotta tell you, when I looked at the data here, if you look at dose one and dose two, and, I'm sorry, and you look at the percentages of any systemic adverse event, you're talking about 70 or 80% of like severe headache or fatigue, nausea, vomiting, malaise, muscle pain, joint pain, elevated temperature. I mean, if it was just an inert protein that was benign, you wouldn't see this. And, and my feeling is, I don't know enough about Novavax, but you know, the diluent or the adjuvant that, it's, that the protein sits in, it's a novel one. We don't know a lot about it. And I'm really tired of these vaccines. There's not a good immunologic uh, support for them. And even though that on paper, it might seem like it's, it's, it's safer, uh, I don't find this data just in their trial, uh, published trial data to be reassuring. I mean, there is a lot of adverse events compared to placebo. And, and I find that worrisome. And so for all the reasons we mentioned, I, I, if anyone's looking for Novavax as a savior, it, it's ridiculous. Rely on your natural immunity, early treatment, and or good health, uh, and or supplementation of vitamin D. And I think that's the best approach going forward. And I'll stop there. Um, do I have more slides? No, I think that was it. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing. All right, Paul, we okay. covered risk, uh, risk benefits and alternatives. Yeah, so obviously... <laughs> It's not an it's not a difficult decision to make. Anyone who has a, you know half a brain, I I, I just don't understand it. Yeah, um, nice shirt there, Pierre. Yeah, you like it? Yeah, it's my very, hero. Very yeah. There you go. Hey Joyce, so you know if, if if we have time for questions, Joyce, is Joyce with us or you fallen asleep? No, Joyce, I I, I am here. <laughs> I am here, but I'm unable to start my video right now because 
Maybe Tom, Tom, are you there? There we go. Hi, Joyce. Okay. It's much better seeing you, seeing you live, Joyce. <laughs> okay, we do have some questions, but uh, you know, out of everything you said, and and I could stop you and at every point and ask a follow up question because it's just mind blowing what you presented tonight, uh, both of you. But I'm I'm stuck on this one one point you made in the Pfizer trial data. Uh, Pierre, you talked about that it showed a 78% spontaneous abortion rate. The Pfizer trial data. Why is it then that any physician would recommend a, a Pfizer shot for a pregnant woman? So, Joyce, you actually may want to ask why the CDC and me, Paul. No, yeah, I'm me. answering for you. Then you. I can remember answer. her asking me. No. Okay, you answer then. All right, now what I want to say is, because I also have to defend myself, it's either 78 or 87 or 83, but it's something ridiculous. And, yeah. and the fact that it was in the data, and this was actually a little bit of a scandal at the time, is that the definition of a spontaneous abortion uh, versus a stillbirth is any um, fetal demise that occurs before 20 weeks. And you can't have a spontaneous abortion in your third trimester by definition. And when they presented the data of the miscarriages and spontaneous abortions, they used the entire denominator of pregnant women. So it didn't look that bad. But when you look at just the first trimester and just the patients who were followed, because the problem was, I think there was 300 some odd women who got pregnant during the trial but they didn't follow all 300. The only pregnancies they of the women they followed who got pregnant, where they had the data, that's where that high rate from. And that is absolutely terrifying. And I mean, Joyce, we know in our own little circle of family that we've had women in our families who've lost babies after being vaccinated. And that's that data was there. What's and so they wrote a paper on it. Yeah, what's astonishing is the CDC has a... Uh, a media program in which they're actually promoting the use of vaccines and pregnancy. They have this advertising campaign, which is truly astonishing. And then there was a ghostwritten paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which claimed that, that uh, the vaccine was safe in pregnancy, but they only then, as you said, looked at those who reached the third trimester. So they ignored all the first and second trimester. So, I mean, it's it's astonishing that you would want to be vaccinated. It's Fraud. even more astonishing that a pregnant woman would actually succumb to such a thing because the likelihood of having a spontaneous abortion is just so high. In fact, it's more efficient in terminating a pregnancy than the, than the abortion tablet. That's how effective it is in terminating a pregnancy in the first and second trimester of pregnancy. Wow. And, and remember, Joyce, not too long ago, Tom Marks, right, the big vaccine uh, cheerleader uh, from the FDA, he literally did a public service announcement saying that there's no concerning safety signals or toxicity signals for pregnant women, that it's safe for pregnant women. I think I saw that. Yeah. that has to go down in history. It has to go down in history as, as essentially leading to, to the death of, of incalculable human life. Unbelievable. 
All right, well, uh, we've got some other questions from our viewers. Um, and I'm not gonna ask to anyone in particular, so you guys duke it out after the questions come. Uh, Elaine asks, in view of the BA5 spreading and the high percentage of vaccination in the population, can we say with any certainty that mass vaccination gives an advantage to the virus by making it produce more variants like the subvariants of Omicron? So maybe I'll attempt that. So I mean, Gertrude and Bush postulated this at the beginning of the pandemic that the best way to put evolutionary pressure on the virus is to vaccinate. So, you know, why hasn't the virus disappeared? You know, if we had embarked on a program of early treatment uh, of all patients, we likely would not be where we are now. So, you know, it's difficult to be 100% sure, but it's likely that all these variants, the variants we have are due to evolutionary pressure due to the vaccine. Well, I, I, yeah, I totally, I like, I like what you said. We'd be in a much different state where the, we wouldn't even have to like wonder about that. But I think that's a good point to bring up Uttar Pradesh. You know, when you, when you look at what Uttar Pradesh did, which is a historic public health achievement, right? 70 to 90,000 healthcare workers, contact surveilling, tracing, testing, and provision of not only treatment to the infected, but prophylaxis to all of the households. And they essentially eradicated the disease. Exactly. I mean, had we exactly. done that on a global scale, we, I mean, there's, it would be just a completely different world. And it was achievable. We just never achieved it, except for Uttar Pradesh. And you want to guys want to know a fun fact, you know, what makes Uttar Pradesh unique and why they achieved this? And I find this really fascinating is that their chief minister is a man who came into power on a platform of anti-corruption. He would not tolerate it, and he sought to root out corruption at every turn. In fact, before COVID started, he had already sacked hundreds of public officials, civic officials, and governmental officials for corruption. He would not stand for it, and he was about doing the right thing and not being influenced by, by these incentives and all these other entities. And I think it, it, it took a man in that kind of power and to set that kind of example to achieve that. Because everywhere else in the world, it seems that we've succumbed to, to fraudulence and corruption. And so I, I really want to hold out Uttar Pradesh and, and the chief minister there for, for what they achieved. So how does, how does this end? How does the, uh, how does, I mean, we're out there fighting and a lot of the people who are watching this tonight are in the ring with us, but how does this end? And, you know, too many have needlessly lost their lives. How many more have to die before this ends? Joyce, you're asking me to predict it. Every prediction of mine so far has been like, I just two more weeks, Three more weeks, we'll turn this thing around. And I've been saying that for a year. I think it's gonna, here's what I think is, I think that the fraud is slowly being revealed. The people are getting wise and the truth is outing. The pace at which that's happening is very unsatisfying to me because I've been there for so long and I'm waiting for everyone else to catch up, but it's happening. I think that article about employees leaving the health agencies, I think that's yet another signal that people are seeing that this edifice of, of propaganda and censorship is crashing down. Yeah. And, and I think that even applies to like World Economic Forum. I mean, the truth is outing. And I think 
people are start, you know, people are not showing up to vaccination centers. I, I don't know what the actual accurate, most up-to-date data, but the toddler vaccinations, the last I heard it was like maybe one to 2% of toddlers were showing up for the, well, they don't show up, but the parents weren't <laughs> bringing them, you know, for these vaccines. And I think, I think people are learning to be very skeptical of health authorities and they want to hear from people like us, doctors on the ground, just trying to figure out how to, how to do best by a patient, not from like these autocrats and highly conflicted entities. Yeah, unfortunately, Joyce, the, the, the predicting the future is somewhat unpredictable. Um, I think that we're going to have this at least for some time ahead of us. Um, so we can't really let our guard down. You know, who knows what's next? But I think COVID was the first chapter of the Great Reset. And unfortunately, I think they have a lot uh of really unpleasant surprises for us in terms of controlling our food source, controlling energy, controlling all kinds of things. So, um, you know, I think people have to recognize this. This, unfortunately, was not an accident. This was planned. And there's some very nefarious um, goals that are being uh perpetrated here so you know we we nearly we really need to stand up to this medical this tyranny this uh this globalist uh, agenda and um you know it's it's this the it's scary it's very scary it is very scary and those of us with children and grandchildren are just you know the the uncertainty of what lies ahead is frightening a um, couple other questions before we say good night. Um, Kenny wants to know, what is the hope for those who have been injected? And it gives you an opportunity, I think, to talk a little bit more about, you've been doing a deeper dive, uh, Dr. Merrick, into autophagy, correct? Yeah, yeah Paul, so let, me, let, me, let me give a short answer to that real quick, because I, I, when I hear that question, I always... Um, I feel bad, like when, when we talk about all of these adverse events and, and, and really the, the harm that vaccination has done, I, you know, it's not my intent to make people anxious. We have, there's plenty of stuff that we can be anxious for that's going on in the world right now. And I, I don't want to add to people's burdens as they're trying to navigate their way through this pandemic. And, and so I do want to say something a little bit reassuring is that I think for those who've been vaccinated, the first step is to not get any more vaccines. That's number one. Number two, based on some of the data that I showed today, I think once it's been some amount of time since your vaccine and no untoward events, or maybe you didn't have any symptoms, I mean, many people have tolerated the vaccines just fine. I think you're probably okay. Do you run the risk of maybe being more likely to get a B45 variant or being more severe? Yes. But the, the focus would be on early treatment. We still know that works. I treat patients in my practice. They're vaccinated, unvaccinated. I, sometimes I see differences, but we get everyone through. Sometimes I have to pull more arrows out of my quiver, but we get everyone through. Treatment works. So I don't want to like scare uh, the vaccinated. And, and by the way, there are many of us, there's some, quite a few of us in the FLCCC who've been vaccinated. My wife's been vaccinated. I mean, we kind of had a trust and faith that it was going to be something that was good for us. And so I don't want anyone to feel bad that they got vaccinated, but I do want to encourage them to please do not get vaccinated any longer. 
Yeah, so I must agree with Pierre. So most people who get vaccinated actually seem unlikely to develop serious adverse events or adverse events much. It's really Russian related. It depends on a whole lot of factors, including which lot you got. So if you were lucky enough to be vaccinated and really be asymptomatic, you know, just thank, you know, thank your lucky stars and just maintain your health and never get vaccinated again. Um, so it's the very, it's the unfortunate small percentage of people who have been vaccine injured that, you know, that we need to focus on. But those people who've had the vaccine and have come through okay, really, they, they, they should just, they shouldn't worry, worry about stuff they can't control, just maintain their health and obviously completely avoid getting vaccinated again. That's good, and that's hopeful. Good. Yeah. A uh, couple other questions, guys. Um, we have one from uh, John who said, "How do you respond?" We've talked uh, the other side of this uh, the, to the claim that unvaccinated Americans are up to nine times more likely to die from COVID nineteen. That was yeah, so. That was a big fat lie. So Paul, Paul talk about the lie. It that's a, a lie. Big- that has to be that has to be a, an American United States source, because that was one of the first tells that. Well, I mean, everything changed for me in February, March of 2021, when I realized that everything that was being said and published about ivermectin was a false narrative. I started to question the narratives around the vaccines, and then I started to learn what narratives are, and they're generally not based on truth. They're based on an objective. And mm-hmm. You know, when when this that narrative of that the unvaccinated are filling the hospitals from very early on, we saw in Israel, which was out ahead of the pack, that wasn't true, even annualized to a rate ratio. They were not the predominant uh, majority in the hospitals. It was always the vaccinated. And again, I go back to what I said before in the United States, the reason why the unvaccinated where the predominant people in the hospital is because they weren't documented as as vaccinated. There was a system and a process which allowed them to be documented as unvaccinated, even though they were. It was very hard to be documented as vaccinated in official US hospital data. And I will tell you, our agencies used that like a cudgel and we were bludgeoned with that narrative. It was false. And, and that's how I knew something was wrong. And that's how I first started to wonder, like, how come nobody in the hospital is vaccinated? And I found out they were vaccinated. They just weren't documented as that. And the U.S. data is the only one that departs from all of the other country data. Scotland, U.K., Wales, Australia, Israel, some any place would had more granular data on vaccination. You could see that it was the vaccinated that were the majority in the hospital. So that was a false narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. So many, too, that we just, you know, you just have to kind of run between the raindrops and figure out what's what, because nothing is as it appears. Um, Question from Marcy. I got BA5, have had it for one week, seems to be lingering. How can I speed up recovery at this point? Well, I'm going to say not enough information, because it depends what's lingering. Um, One thing that I found in treating patients is I almost kind of break up the phases like into the dynamic phase where you have like uh, fever, you know, joint pains, headache, congestion, 
Um, that usually settles down, if, especially if you're being treated by day five or six. The stuff that lingers is sometimes just a little cough or fatigue. I do not have a magic wand for fatigue. I, I treat that with a tincture of time, sometimes two tinctures of time, um, but generally those things will resolve over time. So again, I don't want to go into individual cases, but uh, I, my hopes are that the more severe symptoms have gone, like she said, it's lingering. Yeah, stuff lingers, but you'll get through. If, if you've generally been improving, that trajectory will continue to improve as long as you keep doing what you're doing. And so for that sure, dovetail, and I think yeah. also it's really important that people make sure that they feed their immune system, that they take whatever nutraceuticals they can to improve their immune system. You don't want to forget about your microbiome. Really interesting. COVID changes your microbiome. So you want to feed your gut and you want to feed your white cells and you want to do whatever you can to maintain your health. With, with um, one more little caveat though, Joyce, is that when my patients, so when I see patients in my practice, we see them initially, we put them on a, on a treatment regimen, and then we always do a follow-up like three, five, six days later. And in that follow-up, I hear that report a lot, but I'm also monitoring for a secondary complication. You know, generally it's not the pulmonary phase of COVID, but we have seen occasional bacterial pneumonias, bacterial sinusitis, which might need an antibiotic. So, you know, I, as long as there's nothing new and worsening, my sense is that if it's just lingering and you're kind of generally improving, just, you know, support that process, like Paul said. Yeah. So that dovetails nicely into what will now be our last question from Rochelle, who said, when does COVID become long haul? And then how long should someone wait to be treated for long haul? All right. So my uh, experience with long haulers is the vast majority follow this trajectory, which is they get sick with COVID. It's generally not hospitalized COVID. It's mild to moderate outpatient COVID. Um, generally, they're not treated with what we know are effective medicines. And they generally improve. So they recover from those symptoms and they enjoy a period of normalcy. Most enjoy a period of normalcy where they're like, hey, I feel better and I'm back and they'll go back to work. Mm -hmm. They'll go back to yeah. working out. And then like one, two, three weeks later, weird stuff starts happening, right? And they, they develop a whole different uh, constellation of symptoms and they become really quite ill with more chronic symptoms. That's the majority. I have had the experience of patients who have like passed go and they went from acute COVID to long haul. And I've had a handful of those where even after they recovered, they developed like day 10 or 11, like a couple of weird symptoms that didn't feel quite right. And that kind of never really improved. And so, but that's the minority. So, so long haul is really, it's almost like a second phase syndrome. And I think that's where, you know, when Paul and I talk about long haul, you know, we think of autoimmunity, like the antibodies starting to attack that, like there's a little bit of a delay for that to happen. And I think that's what explains some of that you know, that, that, that valley before it happens again. I, hopefully that's helpful, but that's been my experience. Yeah, no, that's great. All right, before we wrap up, I see, I see uh, the, your book behind you there, Dr. Corey, just uh, wondering. Oh, that one? <laughs> that, that one, that one. The one that I so, hid in my yeah. bookshelf? <laughs> you hid it, and you hid it so well, I found it. Um, so what's the deal with that? I know it's not out yet, but there you have it. What's, What's going on here? Um, 
I've been writing it for months. I've gotten help. Um, we're hoping that we're two weeks from submitting our final draft. Um, I think it'll be available for, for publication by September. And, but basically the That's book quick. is really, you know, I just want to say very briefly what, what the book is trying to do. It's trying to, it's trying to relate what we've learned. And Paul and I talk about this all the time. What, what we talk about how little we knew of how medicine was really run. I mean, even though we were part of the system and we were practicing everything that we've learned, and, and I feel like ivermectin is an index case for what the pharmaceutical company does against generic repurposed drugs. And, and I've been a close observer, a keen observer. In fact, I've had like almost a front row seat to a horror show uh, of lies yeah. and tactics intended you to have. suppress you the have. efficacy of a medicine. And I, and I think it's a story that needs to be told. And, and really, in order for people to understand how pharmaceutical industry, how they operate, the tactics that they use, and how they really can be very damaging to public health if the treatment is not highly profitable. Right, exactly. So, um, yeah, so you're, uh, you're finishing this book. Is it, gonna, it's, is it going to be a chronological kind of thing from the beginning uh, to... There's going to be... Chron- he, doesn't, he doesn't know yet. Chris. No, no. It, well, I'm working with Mike Capuzzo, right? Who's a two-time New York Times bestseller. And, and he's helping me craft the narrative. It, it's partly chronological, but it, it, it actually is going to be structured around the disinformation playbook, which is that famous article yes. uh, written by the Union for Concerned Scientists, because that, that article transformed me and my experience and my perspective. And once I learned about the tactics that they employ, I kind of saw the world in a different light. And, and everything I saw from then, and I'll tell you when I got that article, it was from William Grant, one of the world expert researchers on vitamin D. And he sent that to me in March of 2021. I didn't know who he was. It was a random email. And he said, Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And he included the link to the article and I clicked on it and I read it. I was like, it, everything made sense where nothing made sense before. And so I, I think it's an important article and it's an important perspective that people understand uh, so of how here, these places operate. Yeah. Are they going to make a movie out of the book? You want to play me? <laughs> Actually, no, you and I are going to play ourselves. We're going to play ourselves. Paul. I was going to say, who, who do you want to be you? Um, Brad Pitt. You can get Anthony Hopkins. Okay, Wait, so is he dead? <laughs> Wait, is he dead yeah. or alive? He's he's still rocking and rolling. Oh, he is. He's I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks. Still rocking and rolling. Oh my gosh, you guys. All right, all right. Well, We're going to yeah. Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins. I mean, that thing would crush it. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me see if I can get them on the phone and see yeah, if they're interested. But in any event, whoever plays you, whoever plays Paul, it should be it should be a movie because this is. Uh, this is well. We've we've been on this journey, I guess, all together uh, since March of 2020. Joyce, you've been there since mm-hmm. before day one. So yeah, before day one, it's true. So I, I don't, you know, I don't want to. Just a short answer from both of you. If you had known what in those wait, Joyce, hold on. I just yeah. saw a chat message. Someone what? wrote. 
please let Dr. Merrick talk about autophagy. If that happens, I'm going to blow my head off and I'm going off screen. No, I'm teasing. I love when he talks about autophagy, but he talks about it all the time. <laughs> except that, except that she, whoever, whoever uh, in the chat, if you want to watch Dr. Merrick talk about autophagy, just, you know, queue up last week's uh, webinar and you will hear all about Joyce, autophagy. You know what? We're not done with autophagy because yeah, I know the we're not. more... The more I read about autophagy, I I, I, I want to self-eat. It's 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 a truly remarkable mechanism, and it happens in the brain. It happens in white cells. It happens. It's a it. All cells do it, and it's such it serves such an important function. So you know, I think the future of life is autophagy. That is, uh, <laughs> that's what lies ahead of us, and. Um, so Folks, so you're going to have an autophagy, have an autophagy festival, no, no. an autophagy party, and we're just going to autophage. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll autophage. So I was going—I was just going to ask. This is this is you—you you get a one-word answer followed by one sentence because we're running out of time here. We want to don't want to keep these good people one too long. One sentence, Joyce. All right, the the one-word answer. You'll see. You'll see why. So the question is. If you had both known in the early days of, you know, getting involved in trying to, you know, find ways to treat this disease, and we now know it's a, it's a very treatable disease, um, looking back on it, would you have, if you had known, would you still have gone forward and with what you did, knowing what happened to both of you on the way to today? Uh, Joyce, we had no option. I no mean, choice. I think if we had to play the playbook again, we would have done exactly what we did. Um, That's the answer. I, I, I can't see any deviation. You know, I, I have no regrets. I think what we, you know, we, 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 you know, some people will say we got lucky, you know, as the New England Journal editor said, we didn't get lucky. We just followed the science. We followed our clinical skills and we just try to do the right thing and i think if we had to do it again i would certainly do exactly yeah but it if we if we knew the outcome um i i would still say i you know i had regret regrets and i was sad for different times i hated losing one of my jobs the other two i was okay with but um you know, knowing what, I mean, there's no choice. I mean, if, if we knew that we had to step forward and, and speak the truth, we would do that no matter what was going to come at us. Um, if you told me that if I knew my car was going to go blow up when I started, maybe I'd have second thoughts, but I don't know. We've, we've weathered everything else pretty okay. Right, Paul? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I have to, I have to say you, you, you have both soldiered through some of the worst times and, just know that there are legions of people out there who are alive today because of you, because of what you did and because of what you are doing and will yet do. Um, I'm just so proud to not only just know you, but to, to know, I, and I, you know, I've, I've seen it all with, uh, with what yeah, this is what well, well, Paul, Joyce, Paul this, we, this we is... have to call out Joyce here because 
I have to say, and I've said this multiple times before, Paul, you and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Joyce. Yeah, she um, propped us up when we were falling down, when we were like, screw this and everything. She kept us yeah, so, up. I mean, you know, there's Joyce and there's Kelly and there's Betty and there's Zara who, who've been the glue that have kept us together. So it's a team. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, and obviously our wonderful nurses. So, you know, we do this all together because that's what we have to do. And, you know, we'll continue for doing it as long as we can. Because um, that's what, you know, that's what's been thrust upon us. We didn't choose to do this. It's what, you know, was uh, forced upon us. And you, I don't think we have regrets. Uh, it's not been an easy journey, but, you no, know. It has not. It, it has not. Know, my new there career was, is calling out bullshit. It's what I used to do. <laughs> I just didn't get paid extra for it. In fact, I got, you know, attacked for it. And now I do it as a profession. So we'll, we'll keep just trying to give pragmatic advice and, and, and steer people away from stuff that need to steer, be steered away from. So Joyce, do you want to tell the folks what we're going to be doing next week, next Wednesday? Because I think it's going to be pretty interesting. Yes, yes, it will be interesting. Um, uh, before we do that, I'm going to ask that people um, remember that we are a 501c3, we are a nonprofit, and we rely entirely on donor support to keep bringing you nights like these. So, uh, and life saving information, all of what we give you here on the weekly webinar. And a good way to donate is buy this shirt. Look at that. Come on. Oh, Look, yes. Walk around like that. <laughs> Right. Yes, of course. Actually, so, there's keep another shirt. There's another shirt that I wanted to wear that I think you guys should all buy, but it's really cool. Christina made it. It it says uh, medical censorship kills, and then there's like a little EKG tracing, which then goes asystole. And I think it's a badass shirt. And so get that one. <laughs> okay, it's 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 on the store. It's on the, it's on uh, the you, store. Link to the store on the homepage at flccc.net. So do whatever you can to support us, please. No amount is too small. So, uh, so Paul, we have some very special friends, as you know, joining us uh, next week. Bernadette from Tennessee and Melissa from New Hampshire will be here to share their experiences and their successes in fighting for medical freedom at the state level. Now, why is this important? It's going to be a great discussion, number one, but we're hoping we're all going to learn tips on how to bring this advocacy home to our own state. So definitely don't miss it and tell your friends to join. One, one last um, thing, uh, Joyce, yes, is we'd be remiss. I, my day was yes. really bad, but I, I did an interview, a little chat with Tess today. World Ivermectin Day is on Saturday. Does everybody yes, know that? Yes, yes. And, and you know what's yeah, interesting? Gonna... What, what we talked about with Tess, We've all been so busy, like everyone is just pulled to the to the nth degree that like we're all trying to like get something done for World Ivermectin Day. So um, what she told me is go to the World Council for Health. Please register of any events, anything that anyone's doing for World Ivermectin Day. I think the FLCCC will provide some content. I did an interview with Tess, but uh, just want to make sure we do a shout out for World Ivermectin Day. Yeah, that's actually the last slide on our closing slides. I don't know, Tom, I can you- steal your thunder? Sorry. No, 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 Thank that's you. okay. Can you jump to that, Tom, or you want to go in order? Go in order. Oh, okay, we'll go in order, and then we'll get to the- You're going you're gonna to want to see this slide. Okay, so last week's conversation, Paul, about autophagy really got people excited. So there was tons of information shared. If you missed it, 
As we said before, check the replay on our Odyssey channel and don't miss this week's long story short with Dr. Bean. He's going to break it down in typical Dr. Bean style. He's fabulous too. And that's going to be out on Friday, by the way. And speaking of Dr. Bean, he and our very own Dr. Keith Berkowitz had a great chat about managing the BA5 variant recently. So uh, head on over to Dr. Bean's YouTube channel to check it out. While you're there, be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any more of Dr. Bean's amazing videos. Um, BA5 uh, does seem to be resulting in some more serious disease. So go to our protocols page, make sure you have the latest version of eye care, our early treatment protocol, plus eye prevent, which helps you boost your immune system and protect you from contracting the virus in the first place. While you're there, take a look at the new Math Plus Hospital Protocol. It was just been updated. And we've also made some changes to the iRecover post-vaccine protocol to reflect last week's conversation about autophagy, spermidine, and resveratrol. Check it all out again, flcc.net slash protocols. Okay, here's your slide. Talk about it, Pierre. World Ivermectin Day, uh, come one, call them all. I don't know that there's any place to go to, but um, you go to that website and like I said, post any events. Uh, I saw on the chat, someone asked when they can see the um, interview with me and Tess. I'm sure that's gonna be on the, that website. Paul, you and Tess did a, a, an interview last week. Um, so we are generating content and the FLCCC will, will, will try to provide some stuff. Uh, but yeah, to try to think of Ivermectin on that day, it is, it is really, really important as the, the globe battles this crisis and don't forget it and champion it wherever you can. Excellent, thank you. And before we say goodbye, uh, Paul and Pierre, we wanna say hello to our nurses who have been online all evening answering our questions. So uh, it, uh, Christina, if she's not still here, she had to uh, jump off a little bit, but if she's not here, still here, still. you're here. Hey, okay. I'm a dedicated person. You hey, Christina. Are. I'm so impressed. Um, so let's put them on the screen if we can, Tom. And Christina, uh, Christina yeah, I yeah. was looking at the chat. A number of people want car magnets that say medical censorship kills. They I would really love want car magnets. That, but I, I can't make magnets. I can only make certain things in the store. Oh, bummer. I know. Oh. I'm doing my best, though. <laughs> okay. Well, Christina, we had um, we also had Panama Burnham, Samantha Hanks on. And where's, uh, let's see, where's Samantha's here somewhere? She's up there. Okay. See, I see. Yeah, I see you. But there you are. Hi, Samantha. Thank you. <laughs> How many questions did you guys answer tonight? We had around 280. We answered 145. Oh my goodness, yes. you guys have been extremely busy. Thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate all you do. We're going to close out tonight with an animated video our team produced for World Ivermectin Day. Yay! And awesome. we'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks, everyone. Good night. <laughs>